Welcome to the Ambition Incubator podcast. Whether you're a seasoned professional, entrepreneur, or keeping your edge sharp until the time is right to launch your master plan, you're in the right place. I'm here to share with you what I learned on my quest to find the best techniques to elevate your potential and master the art of success. I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. As an entrepreneur, I've built and supported successful businesses for nearly two decades. In this podcast, you'll hear about the tools developed at the cutting edge of what we know about human biology and intelligence, and the people who use them. Stay tuned to hear about neuroscience concepts and hacks, and interviews with experts that will help improve your game. This, my friend, is where we take it to the next level. Hey there, and welcome to the show. It is hard to believe that this is episode four already. Time flies when you're talking to yourself, doesn't it? Funnily enough, that's what I'll be looking at in this episode, the why and how of talking to ourselves. And before you think this doesn't apply to you because you're not crazy, fear not. You don't have to be a Jack Nicholson character to have an inner voice. But what that voice says, what it tells us, combined with how we act on it, makes an enormous difference to our effectiveness in the world. So let me ask you, have you ever heard the phrase, too many cooks spoil the broth? Or what about, two heads are better than one? Now, those seem to contradict each other, don't they? I mean, which is it? Do we need more input or do we need less input? So let's get down to it. How many of your own decisions do you make? You might be thinking, "Mm, all of them, or at least most of them. But some are probably made for you, whether directly or indirectly. So what we're thinking about today is how many that you, by one means or another, allow other people to make on your behalf. This is a really fascinating kind of question as we learn about the brain and also as we explore our possibilities and potential to develop. If we ask ourselves what we truly want from life, the key question here is do we feel as though we have the freedom to pursue that? And if not, why not? We've touched on ideas like our existing commitments and so on in previous episodes, what one of my clients in her more cynical moments used to call the hinderers. But is that really true though? Are the things and people in our lives what really gets in our way or is it something else entirely? What if it's simply down to the fact that we haven't made a decision? I mean, a real deep down decision, not just a passing notion or a whim. Have you ever noticed how consistently you move towards a goal when you have made a committed decision to do so? I mean, that could be anything from something as simple as doing the dishes to learning a new skill. And have you ever noticed on the opposite side of the scale how faltering or painful your progress might be if you haven't made that decision with full commitment? I mean, maybe you're doing something just to please someone else or believing that it will fail in some way anyway. And we've all heard of these amazing individuals who overcome so many obstacles to achieve their goals, like, you know, the moms with the four young kids who create their seven figure businesses or the individuals who, even though they had no money, no connections and a traumatic past, went on to overcome language barriers, social prejudice and so much more and then graduate from a top university. There are so many examples of people who have what seems like insurmountable problems in their way and yet they succeed when millions of others, who seem to have only minor impediments by comparison, never make the leap. Why is that? Is it because, like we talked about in episode two, they're not uncomfortable enough to get going? Plenty of people who are comfortable strive for more though, so maybe that's not it. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe they're too uncomfortable. Or perhaps it's because they haven't made the decision, the commitment to action. Let's look at it a slightly different way. 
Can you think of a time when you knew what you wanted to do and you did it versus a time where there was some level of indecision or uncertainty? What for you was the main difference between those experiences? Were there any factors that gave you either clarity or cloudiness in your decision making? I was talking with one of my regular clients about her business journey recently, and it certainly hasn't been straightforward. In the last year, she's been unable to serve her clients for months at a time because of pandemic restrictions. But despite these setbacks, she continued to find ways to make progress. Sure, some weeks it was harder than others, but she kept going. And she put it down to the fact that she had decided what she wanted. She was no longer seesawing about whether or not she should pursue the venture. She knew what she wanted to achieve and why. In her mind, she had become a business owner and her decision was made. She is resolved. That's such an interesting word here. Um, To say that we're resolved in a decision says a lot about the process, I think. When we resolve issues, we fix what isn't working. And similarly, with our decisions, we become resolved when any outstanding issues that we have can be settled. Some of these are practical, but more often than not, they're emotional. And for many people, emotions are no-go areas where they dare not tread. Sometimes this is because it's just too darn uncomfortable. And sometimes it's because we don't know how to do it effectively. This is where we can bring in some of the wonderful things that neuroscience has to tell us about our brains and our emotions, and even how our bodies are part of this decision-making process too. Did you know, for example, that it's now accepted that our hearts and guts have a big role to play in our emotions and decision-making? The head, heart and gut are sometimes referred to as the three intelligences. It's reflected in our use of language too. I mean, how often have you heard someone say, I feel it in my gut or I know in my heart? These things are real and the more we can tap into them, the more effective we can be with our decision making. And because our brains are absorbing and sorting and assessing all the information that comes to us through our senses all of the time, there's a lot of data being processed about our relationships to our environment and to other people. We're social animals. That keeps coming up on this podcast, I know, but it's a pretty fundamental thing about us. And however we see ourselves, whether we love our alone time or we want to be with people and teams as much as possible, The truth is that we carry the voices, beliefs and worldviews of many other people in our heads too, and they form the stories that we use to navigate our world. It's hard to guess what anyone else's story might be, and often we don't even know for ourselves where some of the elements in our story have come from. Work on intergenerational trauma and epigenetics would suggest that some of it may even be formed by the experiences and losses of your parents and their parents and so on, whether or not you have any awareness of these things. And even without anything traumatic being involved, it stands to reason that we learn from those who provide care for us in our early years. They're our first and most influential teachers. So how they do things, we're likely to do them too. How they see things, we're also likely to see them that way. There comes a time for many people, though, when they have a breakthrough and start to explore different ways of doing things. This can come in many forms and in many ways. Sometimes life stages usher in these changes, the rebellious teen, for example, the independent young adult, or becoming a parent. All of these are typical stages where we look at what we've been brought up with and decide to either go with that or find a different or better way of doing things. And then there's the deeper kind of breakthrough, what I like to call the emotional jailbreak. This is often synonymous with the so-called midlife crisis, a general dissatisfaction with the way things are sets in. This often coincides with the realisation that we are getting older, that our kids are getting more independent, or that we've worked for the guts of 20 years with precious little to show for it. So how does this tie into entrepreneurship and neuroscience? As always, I'm glad you asked. 
Have you ever had the feeling that you're looking for something, but you don't know what? It's like you're trying to find the book that will unlock the secret doorway that's hidden behind the stack shelves. Or maybe you felt like you're trying to crack some code that will finally let you figure out what it's all about. I spent quite some time doing that, if I'm honest. I knew there was something, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. It was actually when I started digging into the whole sphere of the mind that things started to crystallise. And through working with others who were looking for the same answers, I was prompted to dig further and deeper. And what I've come to see is that we're incredibly complex individuals on some levels and incredibly simple on others. And we actually make things way more complex for ourselves than they need to be because of the way our brains are wired. We're wired first and foremost to stay alive. Even this bit of coding has so many extrapolated applications in our inner worlds that we mostly never figure them out. Let's go back to the inner voices though, the too many cooks that are spoiling our broth. So let me tell you a little story. When my son was seven, he came to me and he said, Mommy, the me inside my head, is that really me? So, of course, I was a little bit taken aback by the level of self-observation that this demonstrated. And then he followed it up a few days later with another one. Mommy, am I thinking what I'm thinking? I mean, I have really high hopes for this child. (laughs) And at that stage, of course, I didn't really have very good answers for him, but we did try to think it through. Then, of course, he came to me another day (laughs) in that classic period of deep introspection. And he said, Mommy, what's the darkest golden in the entire universe? Now, if you know the answer to this question, please, please get in touch and let me know because we have never found out what the darkest golden in the entire universe is. But the point is that even at this young age, he was already aware that some of the thoughts that he had inside his head seemed to be acting like third parties. And so many of us have these imprinted voices. They're often referred to as the inner critic or the inner monitor. And for some reason, we rarely have an inner cheerleader. That little voice is far more likely to tell us that we should or shouldn't do something or that we're bad or lazy or careless or stupid. It's like we're tethered to our lowest idea of who we are in a way that's based on a collection of incidents from a lifetime of trying to do the right thing but not succeeding. Bear in mind that our brains have a very strong bias toward the negative. So if nine people tell you what an amazing job you're doing, but the tenth says that you're rubbish, the likelihood is that you'll get sucked in by that and you'll still be smarting at the recollection for far longer than you'll be basking in the glow of the praise despite the fact that the praise far outweighs the criticism. This, of course, is how we learn to avoid consequences that we don't like. If we're told off or criticised or given a bad grade, all these things get filed as bad consequences, which are not aligned with our brain's mission to keep us safe. Now, of course, we also know that we can't please all of the people all of the time, but that doesn't stop us trying, especially as we head out into the world of creating and building a business. I remember once being told that unless you'd failed, you hadn't really learned. And if you hadn't had someone throw shade at your work, then you weren't really reaching enough people. Now, I'm not sure how true that really is, but a really wonderful tactic for dealing with it is to see your first bad review as a milestone. If you know what you're offering is the best service that you can offer and somebody just doesn't like that, well then, okay, you've hit a milestone. Let it be a cause for celebration and look forward to it because it's pretty much inevitable and you may as well get it over with. Of course, if you did a rubbish job, then take it on the chin and be grateful for the feedback and use it because there's no failure, only learning, right? But 
We're often not keen on getting that kind of feedback. For many of us, it goes back to the school system and a lot of years where being wrong was clearly not good. It came with a high risk of ridicule or scolding. And it wasn't encouraged as part of a healthy way to make progress. And this can also be part of the ever-ready voice memo system in our heads that remind us it's easier to avoid the consequences than take the risk. What do you think of that? Does that ring true? If it doesn't, the chances are that you've already done a lot of inner work in this area or you had a very supportive learning environment, which is wonderful and it's an asset that a price cannot be put on. But for those who are still avoiding consequences that were installed as childhood threats or punishments, the question is, how do you get to a stage where you can, if not silence the voices, at least work with them and stop them getting in the way? I've come across a few wonderful techniques that are worth looking into if you've got time. The first is the concept of ANTS, as created by Dr. Daniel Amen. ANTS stands for Automatic Negative Thoughts. Dr. Amen, who's a psychologist, said that he devised this acronym and metaphor for the constant stream of negative thinking that his clients were experiencing. When he came home one day to find his kitchen covered with real, tiny ants scurrying about everywhere, there seemed to be no end to them, and they were just emerging from wherever their colony was. Thousands of them, as Michael Caine famously said in the movie Zulu. Once we start to notice these ants, we can start to record them, to take note of what's going on inside the grey matter. We maybe start to see some patterns. What are the things that we tell ourselves most often? Some typical ones might be, I'm not good with numbers or money. I'm lazy. I'm not smart enough. But these are beliefs, not facts. A giveaway is that it starts with I am. And beliefs, as we know, can be changed. Of course, as well as a negativity bias, we also have a confirmation bias. So unless we're actively aware of this, once our brain has locked onto something negative, then we go around looking for things to confirm that the negative thing is true. Honestly, I mean, with so many things like this going on in our brain, it's a wonder that anyone ever does anything at all, right? Fortunately, these tools are not beyond our control, but often we're just not very practiced at using them to our advantage. It's like I was saying in the last episode about neuroplasticity. It's neither good nor bad, it just is, but the results can be beneficial or not. In order to change a belief, we need to find evidence to the contrary. So when you found recurring ants, then invest some time in finding counter-evidence. Can you think of any instances when this wasn't true? If there was even one instance where it wasn't true, then it's not universally true. So the absolute I am of those ants becomes invalid. We can start to shift away from an identity belief about something as being wholly true to something that is true sometimes, but not necessarily always. So in the eradication of ants, another useful step is to think about what you believe the consequences might be. Are any of the consequences making it easier to stick with the behavior that's causing the belief? Can you think of a way of changing them? Are the consequences realistic? For instance, not paying taxes brings very real consequences, right? Whereas if you go live on Facebook, are the chances of being ridiculed or excluded forevermore by your family actually that realistic? Or will they just go on loving you anyway, no matter how it goes? In episode three, we talked about habits. Ants are habitual responses and beliefs. It is also possible to use the same track'em, stack'em and crack'em process to work with your ants as it is with your habits. And here's a really fun one. When you identify your inner critic, you'll probably notice that it has a definite tone. It might be impatient or sarcastic or sneering, for instance. Try this. Make it sound like a cartoon character or a Muppet. When you hear that little inner voice, 
go back and make it say the same thing in a voice like, I don't know, Sylvester the Cat or Kermit the Frog. They're both pretty good ones. It's very hard to take this stuff seriously when it's coming at you in a totally ludicrous voice. In fact, one of my colleagues actually named her inner voice. So whenever it popped up, she'd say something like, not now, Nigel, I'm busy. <laughs> so have a play around with it and see what happens. Of course, that's only one half the story, right? That's just the internal cast. There's also an external one, isn't there? Family, friends, that irritating colleague who seems to know it all. You know what I mean? In neurolinguistics, there's a presupposition that everything comes from a place of positive intent. Obviously, this positive intent can come from many skewed places and manifest in some pretty obscure and often obstreperous ways. In the main, though, our family and friends want what's best for us. They'll give us advice and support that is based on what they think is the best course of action. And this almost always comes from a place of deep caring and concern for our well-being. However, this advice is rarely untainted by what that person thinks of as an ideal outcome. I've spoken to many entrepreneurs, some of them phenomenally successful, and a surprising number of them said that the support they got from family was slim or non-existent. One of them told me it's a very lonely road when your family's not behind you. And of course, it takes a really confident individual to override this level of opposition. It's hard enough to overcome the imaginary opposition of our aunts and inner critic without having it presented to us in the flesh as well. I've seen this phenomenon across a number of fields and it's exceptionally common when you're trying to make a choice or take a path that your friends and family don't understand or don't know a lot about. Take education, for example. Because my overarching interest in neuroscience is in the areas of learning and change, I've worked with a lot of parents who want an alternative to mainstream state education. For many of them, it wasn't a first choice and they deal with plenty of their own aunts in this regard, but lack of support from family and friends is another major factor for them. Again, the concern is well-meaning in the main. Things like, are your kids going to turn out weird? Will they ever make any friends? Will they even be able to go to college? And for many, it's based on ignorance and prejudice, pure and simple. They've never met a kid who didn't go through the mainstream system, or they have no concept of what it might look like at the end of the day. They might even accept that state education isn't perfect and realise that the child isn't thriving in that environment. But we all got through it, they'll say. It's as though the policy is, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And unfortunately, that just isn't always the case. But the thought process is very similar for friends and family who are bemused by your ideas to create a business. I mean, I'm surrounded by entrepreneurs. I've been doing it most of my adult life. I'm at the stage where I have to try and remember what it was like not to run a business. There are lots of entrepreneurs in my family as well. It's pretty everyday stuff for me. But I know that for a lot of people, it isn't. And stepping outside the safety of a steady paycheck or standing up to say, I've got this thing and I think people will pay me for it. Well, that's just all kinds of crazy for some people's core emotions. Or what if you come to the realisation that you want to do something that upsets the sense of security or identity or status that your loved ones have? Maybe you want to do something that goes against their values or makes them cringe a little bit because it contradicts their own ideas about themselves and the world. This is exactly what happened to my friend who found herself on that lonely road. I mean, they did come round when she started pulling in serious money, but at the end of the day, I think it would still leave a mark if the people closest to you actively tried to get in the way of your vision for better things. What do you think? Unfortunately, sometimes that idea to start a business or that self-confidence that you're lucky enough to have is a bit like planting a seed in a weed patch. Eventually, it becomes overgrown, 
starved of light and dies without ever having bloomed or borne fruit. Is there a way around this? There is, and successful entrepreneurs and leaders have been using it for generations. I'm not saying it's foolproof, by the way, and it does still take resilience, but resilience is something that can be built through support. It's where the concept of the mastermind group comes in. I've benefited myself from groups like this for many, many years. Um, I've built them, I've been part of them. Some of them come together for a specific project. Some form long-term partnerships for mutual support and idea exchange. I mean, the concept has been around for at least a century and has taken various forms over that time. One of the gifts of the global pandemic, if I'm honest, is the concept of having a group of supportive peers who connect regularly in the virtual space. And that's taken on a life of its own. And I have to say, I think it's going to be one of the things that we're not going to give up when restrictions end. This aspect of many online programs and courses is also now being recognised as being pretty much as invaluable as any of the direct teaching materials that are available there. In these groups, people find collaborators, accountability partners and motivation through seeing each other's success. That's what we call the Everest principle. Because before Everest was conquered by Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay in the 50s, no one was really quite sure that it could be done. But the fact that they did it made it possible for others. If he can do it, then so can I, they thought. And also before Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile, it was believed that the human body couldn't withstand that kind of exertion. But once he'd done it, others followed. And they got faster. We're standing on the shoulders of giants when we join a mastermind or a social learning group. We're not only able to digest the material with additional perspectives, we're also benefiting from the experience that our peers bring to the table. It truly is a kind of magic of the human mind when we come to these gatherings and realise that we have some of the puzzle, but each of our peers also has another piece. And their piece, potentially when we join it with our own, could create something entirely new that neither of us would have been able to create on our own. In classic business development books, you'll hear this referred to as masterminding. The principle is the same, though. We just have access to a wider pool of partners these days. And it's often in these supportive and productive environments that we approach flow states where our prefrontal cortex, the seat of our inner critic, can go offline for a bit and allow us a little break from that inner voice. And then we can release the potential that's just waiting to make that emotional jailbreak. If you've seen the Shawshank Redemption, you'll know that even with only a spoon and some patience, it's possible to break out. Imagine what happens when everyone brings an implement and a will to work towards the same end. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, as always, there's a subscribe button if you'd like more bite-sized brain science. And there are some links to some interesting stuff in the show notes. Until next time, I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison, and this is the Ambition Incubator podcast, wishing you boundless possibilities. You've been listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, your weekly source for brain science tools, tips, and techniques. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. It's why I want to make sure that every single episode contains game changers with the potential to elevate your performance and enjoyment to the next level in all areas of life. If you want to catch up between shows, check the show notes for my links. Meanwhile, if you hit subscribe right now, you'll always be first to hear when the next episode is available. Until then, my friend, imagine the possibilities.